Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to this future of protein production webinar, Technologies to Create a New Wave in Alternative Seafood. My name is Nick Bradley. I'm not only your host for the next hour or so, but I'm also the editor of our sister magazine, Protein Production Technology International. Our next edition will be published on 26th of April, and I'm pleased to say that most of today's panelists will be appearing in that huge feature on this very topic. Now, fishing. It's notoriously unsustainable, especially as the industry is incentivized to overfish highly sought after species at the expense of the ocean's ecological balance. And despite there being motivation to drive the restoration of sea life, conversely, our appetite and demand for seafood increases every year. People will on average eat 10% more protein in 2050. And as that seafood demand rises with living standards and population growth, marine aquaculture production is predicted to more than double in the same time, time frame, from 30 million tons per year to around 74 million tons a year. Our oceans simply cannot fill the gap between current supply and future needs. So as with many areas of our global food production system, something's got to give. And that's where alternatives come into the equation. More than $178 million was pumped into alternative seafood in the first half of last year alone. And the market's value is poised to reach 1.6 billion US dollars over the next 10 years. The alternative seafood market remains in its very early stages, but the appetite is growing and more and more products are being unveiled to satisfy the demand. Uh, alternative seafood brands that will succeed, whether plant-based, cell-cultured or fermented, will do so primarily because they have the products that have a texture and taste similar to the real thing. And that's one of the conversation points this afternoon. I am delighted to be joined this afternoon by five heavyweights in the alternative seafood sector, each with distinct products and processes, uh, but they all share the same priorities and ideals, and that is the environment. So hopefully uh, our guests are now popping up on screen, all five of them. I'm just going to uh, ask you to briefly introduce yourself, a little bit about your background, uh, and in a nutshell, um, what your company does specifically. So I'm going to go ladies first. Nikita? Hi, everyone. I'm Nikita. I'm, I should always uh, point out that I have an accent so that people don't sit and think about that the whole time, but I'm originally <laughs> from Denmark. I grew up in Sweden. So I've always kind of lived on the coast and seafood is culturally very important to me. Um, so I'm the CEO of Polita Foods. We are an alternative seafood company and our focus is shellfish, long-term vision, cell-based. And sort of as we scale up to do that completely, uh, we're focusing on plant-based as our go-to market. Excellent. And uh, I'm just going to move to your right now as I see them on the screen. Chris? Hi. 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 Uh, Chris McClure. So uh, I also have an accent, depending on where you're listening from, uh, but I'm based in Iceland, been here for about a little over a decade, um, been a vegan for 16, 17 years, and uh, we're Loki Foods, I founded this about a year ago with my co-founder. We're focusing initially on plant-based seafood uh, before moving into other species, uh, plant-based, but with, with cultivated aims for North Atlantic cod and the, and the not so distant future and we're launching here in iceland 
most likely in the next three to six months into food service and retail. Excellent. And uh, Ofek, over to you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm Ofek, co-founder and CEO at Plantfish, and the first company in the world to create salmon fillet entirely out of plants that cooks and grills like the real thing. And um, I have uh, 10 years uh, background in uh, leading businesses and NGOs, and uh, I'm vegan for 11 years. And as you see, I don't have any accent, right? <laughs> no, none whatsoever. Um, Tom, you're up next. Yeah. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Tom, co-founder and CEO of Hooked Foods. Uh, yeah, we've been up and running since 2019. Uh, yeah, we are focusing on salmon and tuna for now and some breaded products like burgers and fish sticks. Um, and yeah, we're currently in Sweden, Iceland, Finland, about to enter Germany. And uh, yeah, fully plant-based products, of course. Why we're here. Brilliant. And uh, Roe, last but by no means least. Hi everyone. So uh, I think that I won because I have the heaviest accent. And I'm the co-founder and CEO of Full City. I had senior position in biotech, food tech, and digital health companies. I'm a biotech engineer with an MBA from New York University. I love the ocean, and surfing is uh, one of my biggest uh, passions. And a little bit about the Full City. We are a cultivated meat company focusing on fish and seafood. Uh, we have developed a proprietary organoid technology that produces cell-based products very similar to nature. As part of our vision, we target only endangered, highly priced species uh, with a real market need. And the company's first product is the freshwater eel, which is an endangered species that cannot be bred in captivity and has a market demand of billions of dollars. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, we've all got to know you a little better. Um, so today we're going to be talking alternative seafoods. So let's get straight to the heart of matter, um, and hence why today's discussion is an important one. Um, could you perhaps provide me with some um, stats about why, as a society, uh, we should be embracing alternative seafoods? Um, I mean, we know about overfishing and you know, risk of extinction for certain species, um, but there's a big environmental impact of fishing as well, things like bottom trawling. Um, Roe, I'll stay with you. Um, could you perhaps help us set the scene there about the overall picture? and why alternative seafoods uh, are a must-have in the future food system? Yeah. Um, so the global demand uh, for seafood is expected to double by 2050, and even today, less than 7% of the fisheries are being fished at levels that are below uh, sustainable uh, limits. Um, and uh, if you uh, look at, uh, you know, the aquaculture, um, uh, which is, uh, may have been the problem to solve the supply, uh, the man gap uh, has having, is having issues uh, also from the environmental as well as the uh, uh, health uh, perspectives. And uh, that is why there is a big need uh, for alternative. If we look at our first fish, the uh, freshwater eel, its population uh, declined 90 to 95% in the last 30 years. And that's really created uh, a disruption in the the ecological uh, systems where he where it where it lives. Mm -hmm. Okay, Chris. Yeah, um, which which devastating statistic to pull out. Um, so I, I'll kind of address it from our neck of the woods here in Iceland. Uh, there's a there's a false sense there's a 
a myth that Iceland has a sustainable fisheries. And if you look at the, the report by Mindaru, you know, no country can claim that. And, and in so much as, as we are sustainable, actually, there are other countries that are doing it better. We, we usually presume that Iceland's the best. Um, and our, about half of our seafood value is actually coming from North Atlantic cod. And when you look at the, the biggest driver of what's going to, what is already rocking the, the numbers and the volume for that, it actually has nothing to do with any type of sustainability measures that Iceland do. It's the temperatures of the ocean, right? And so just a half a degree Celsius change in the temp in the waters around the ocean of Iceland and cod is just gone. It's migrating, right? So, um, there's, there's no amount of sustainability that can help that, um, in terms of a fishery approach besides just stopping it. I mean, Nikita, your, your product is, uh, you're slightly different. You're sort of focusing on that mollusks and, uh, oysters, um, side of the fence. Are there any, um, particular um conservation concerns with that particular species and then could you just fill us in on that that wider picture as well why we should be embracing alternative seafoods yeah absolutely so um there are to, similar to what chris was just talking about like the temperature changes that can kind of cause uh, algae blooms that can be quite toxic and cause mass die-offs when it comes to um horses in particular uh, or for instance in crabs that can cause cannibalism that happened up in Alaska here this past winter. There's a lot of those type of effects from the environmental standpoint. Um, I did want to touch upon another reason why it's important that we have alternatives. So for instance, for um, oysters in the past decade, um, the risk of contracting vibriosis, which is a kind of a, a pretty gnarly food important illness, has increased threefold in, in the past decade. So it's also from like a health perspective, it's quite important that we have some alternatives there. Um, and we're also seeing a lot of, um, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Billion Oyster Project. So that is a conservation effort that the main focus there is just to support wild oyster reefs to help um, to increase the, the habitat and biodiversity levels and to protect New York against uh, storm surges. So we kind of need them uh, in the environment for biodiversity, for ecological reasons and uh, just to support that. Um, Ofek and Tom, you're, you're both um, producing a, a salmon alternative. I know, Tom, you, you do other products as well. Ofek, shall I start with you? What's the, the particular um, uh, con conservation concerns with, with, with salmon and, and, and that wider picture for you as well, the environmental um, impact of overfishing, etc.? Sure. So first of all, salmon today can be found mostly only in farms. Uh, it's almost disappeared entirely out uh, from the ocean. And uh, one of the reasons are actually the farms that are polluting the areas that salmon lives. And then from that reasons, do not live there. And, and the other thing is just think about the supply chain for salmon, because uh, it's being produced mainly in Norway and in Chile, but everyone in the world wants to get fresh fish. So uh, only from Norway, you have 20,000 flights every year just to supply salmon to the U.S. and Israel and all over the world. It's just one species in one country. There are more countries producing salmon and more species and just see what creative supply chain we have around the world to get fresh fish. And if we can just, you know, produce plant-based salmon next to your door so it will not have to go through all of this cycle of flights and then ingredients that you need to to provide to the farms and it just uh, 
crazy supply chain that uh, can be like that solved. And the, the, the other uh, reasons that people told are super important, but I just want to put one, one point that this industry causes 38 billion kilos of marine life going to waste every year through bycatch and other practices. This is about 60, 600 soccer stadiums full of fish going to waste. This is something that is unpredicted. Like I, I cannot imagine uh, how we can live and be okay with that. And so, yeah, just wanted to put that. Yeah, you know, food waste is probably a topic for another two or three hours. But um, yeah, Tom, just to, uh, <laughs> just to fill us in there, just to complete that picture. Uh, Adam and Ord, or the full... Uh... Full picture, got uh, full picture, full picture. Yeah, I think it's pretty it's pretty straightforward, right? We are consuming more seafood than than we done the past decades, so that is increasing. And at the same time, we see you know depleting, um, you know, supply of seafood, both from wide harvest, whereas nine out of ten species are now fully exploited or overfished, and then from fish farms, they're super dense. As Opec said, like Norwegian, Norway produces the majority of all the salmon wheat in Europe, and you know, they're maximized the coast. They're so dense that mortality rates can be as high as up to 20%. And it, yeah, back to Ophix point, like complete waste of just animals dying because, you know, you want to keep as much produ production, the production as high as possible and the profit as high as possible. And then most commonly, unfortunately, uh, the feed in these fish farms are actually based on fish that are widely harvested. So it actually contributes indirectly to the, to the overfishing as well, even though it might seem like a better option than the than to farm animals and to and to yeah caught them in the wild so um yeah it's just uh, i mean the complete picture is essentially that we need new more sustainable alternatives that can be produced in large scales and and like really meet this increasing consumption of seafood that we have globally today um that don't you know damage the marine systems and that also has all the good things with seafood omega-3s proteins vitamins minerals but not the mercury microplastics or anything uh, like that, which we have today in some of our seafood, unfortunately. So yeah, that's no. a full picture. Thanks, well, we're going to be coming on to the sort of nutrients factor um, a little bit later on. Now, alternative seafood has been a relatively untapped market uh, until recently. Why, why do you think it's um, there's been more financial investment for things like plant-based milks, uh, meat substitutes in, in, in recent years? I mean, plant-based seafood composes less than 1% um, of the total plant-based meat and seafood market conventional seafood accounts for one-fifth of total conventional meat and seafood sales so that share suggests that plant-based seafood represents a significant white space that's obviously why you guys are in this tom would you like to can you take yeah, that one absolutely i mean i did so there's a couple of things i think one thing is the biggest thing i think is the awareness of the problem i think that hasn't been on the top of mind for both entrepreneurs but also investors you know technology developers, uh, the market, the consumers. So it's really been, hasn't been really a market for it, but until a couple of years or maybe four or five years back when people really started to question it and then Seaspiracy came out and brought a lot of awareness through Netflix. I think that actually made a big, big impact. Um, and then, you know, things happen consequently, you know, entrepreneurs looking into it, you know, see that there's actually a potential market out there coming up in market studies that shows that there's a potential white space and there's a lot of companies popping up like when we started there were very few companies but now there's actually like a, a lot of different solutions for different species and we just love that that is happening because 
you know, there's not one company that can solve this big problem and can build this big category of plant-based or alternative seafood. So I think, so I think it's really awareness when you, when it boils down to it. And then that sort of sets things into motion with better technology, better, more ideas, consumer becoming more aware, and there's actually, you know, a market uh, that makes and uh, business case that makes sense. And there's a consumer out there that actually wants this product. So I think many things, uh, but uh, awareness to begin with, I think. Yeah, I would probably agree with that, that there's a bit of awareness and then also perhaps initially the idea of like transitioning away from like red meats into like a pescatarian diet um, seemed a lot healthier. So, and kind of like doubling on what uh, Tom was just saying about, you know, the awareness aspect, even for like oyster farming, um, there are harmful effects there too, like the competition for photoplankton, there's changes in the seabed, there is introduction of invasive species, pest disease, so like a lot of the same issues that we see with other types of farming, we're seeing there as well, but I think the awareness is a huge aspect as well as then, you know, with oceans becoming more contaminated, that does end up in the tissue of the animals there as well. Yeah. Um, Ofec, do you, do you see this as a big white space still, or do, do you feel, feel it's um, filling in a little bit with all of these so, new companies? Uh, it's a good question. First of all, I think that uh, the main reason that people, uh, we find that people are uh, moving plant-based and to be curious about more plant-based is health. And fish consider to be very healthy. When someone goes to the doctor, you say, uh, you say, what, what should I eat? The doctor will say, eat fish. It's like something that's considered to be very healthy. So it's the challenge of, uh, you know, making people to look for uh, fish alternatives is a lot it is, it is a big challenge, right? I mean, it's easier to do it with milk when people know that cow milk is not the best and the red meat might be causing cancer in some, uh, in some countries. Uh, uh, there are uh, very strong recommendations from ministries of health, but fish, you know, that's the healthiest. And I think that's the main challenge of the industry and we're still not there. Okay, I think fish has a lot of answers. We all here know that fish has a lot of, uh, a lot of bad stuff. Okay, mercury, antibiotics, microplastics, a lot of bad stuff. But consumer, they don't know about it. And we are now building a, a new industry that is based on we have something better for you, not only for the planet, because people will not eat because it's better for the planet. Unfortunately, maybe with some big ads, but we want to do we want to, to create an impact. And in the impact, we need to make something which is better, taste better, healthier, same price or less, and we're still not there. And, there, and because we're still not there and the perception of fish is so, so good, we have very hard work and we're still there. Like it's not the, it's the early beginning of the movement. And we are here, all of us, because we believe that the future will be different because of, because of us, because of other players, the future will be different, but it's still not there. Yeah. Chris, um, Rory, would you agree with that? Um, I agree with everything said. I can give uh, the angle of cultivated uh, meat because uh, cultivated meat uh, companies that specialize in, in fish and seafood started as the second wave of cultivated uh, meat uh, companies. And uh, the first reason was that uh, uh, the potential for cultivated meat is larger, you know. We're saying that only fifth of the size of the market is the, the uh, um, seafood and fish. But also there was not enough uh, science around uh, cell lines or fish or seafood 
and uh, it was very easy to the companies to start with lines that they are familiar familiar with uh, the mammalian ones uh, but i think that the opportunity with the uh, cultivated seafood and fish is is huge uh, one of the reasons is that it's a fragmented industry so each one of the companies can choose to, to start with a different um fish or seafood type and each one of them can account for billions of dollar potential and and i still believe that uh the widest space in the alternative pro in the stages with the uh, uh fish alternatives if only chris um, sorry my phone is dialing i was calling me um so um you know, Iceland, we, we've, we're the seafood capital of the world. No one consumes more seafood here than per capita than any other country. Um, and I, I agree with everything everyone's saying. There's a, there's a mythos about abundant, like this, this thing, this, this great ocean is just going to keep providing and it's, it's never ending and it's bucket lists. And, and, um, you know, that's, that's, that's one where we've had to where we have to bring awareness to that we have to bring awareness to the fact that this isn't, this isn't healthier. Algae oil is better than for you than cod liver oil hands down. Yeah. You know, that's, that's also something we have to kind of go up against. And the other thing we have to go up against is the fact that, you know, every single input to the food system that is animal based has to be replaced if we want to have a regenerative culture and society. And so when you understand that, well, you could do cow. You pick one protein, boom, you nailed pretty much every single type of product from cow, right? For the most part. Well, if you want to do seafood, you've done salmon, it's not going to work for whitefish. If you've done whitefish, it's not going to work for caviar. And you have all different types of shellfish, which all have their own type of complexities. And you have eel, and you have, it's its own behemoth. So there, there's a lot to, to kind of undertake. So talking about whether or not there's a, you know, t too many, uh, entrance or competitors or, or whatever it's that's i, I it's psychotic <laughs> you know it's uh so but i, I think the, the abundance aspect the mythos about somehow it's healthier um are the the two that we have to keep bringing awareness to as, as companies i mean it's our day job that the five of us here is basically just talking about the state of the ocean right yeah well i mean it's uh it's not an inexhaustible resource yet uh humanity seems to treat it as such um now, uh, recently there was a, a, an historic agreement um, reached on protecting marine biodiversity and international waters. It was the High Seas Treaty. It's been going on for many, many years, but it seems that many countries um, reached an agreement. It still needs to be ratified. Um, but much like climate change, is that um, too little, too late? Um, I mean, alternative seafood ticks so many boxes. Um, but do you feel it attracts enough attention at a sort of governmental um, policy um, level. I mean, if we invested as much into new solutions such as the ones you guys are developing, rather than band aids to fix the problems, um, we could achieve so much more. Nikita, what you, what, you, what are your thoughts on that? That's a tough question. <laughs> um, I don't think there, there's been enough attention on that. Like, I think actually we kind of talked about it with eel in the beginning here. So, I grew up in Denmark. My grandma used to uh, serve eel to us when we were kids. She hasn't been able to find them in the local like fishermen stores for the past, I don't know how many years. So I think it is perhaps like it's also doomed, like 
horrible to talk about, but I think it is, it's definitely late. <laughs> we definitely need to kind of like, it, it needs to be a bigger concern. Um, I think that all the stuff that we're doing definitely something that kind of will aid that because now we can focus on sort of conservation for biodiversity rather than just for our own consumption. Um, so I think that that's, that's at least hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Ofec too little, too late. I can say that I was in the North Atlantic uh, Seafood Conference. Um, it was uh, the beginning of this month in uh, Norway. And every single CEO of a seafood company who came up was shouting on the Norway government for banning them from doing more fish farms. Something is happening, guys. Like, something is happening. I, I think that, uh, that we're on a direction that humanity starting to understand that like what we understood about meat 10 years ago that it's not that sustainable and we should do something about it i feel we're on the same day like we're where it was 10 years before for bits we're there today so in 10 years hopefully from today it will be very very much uh, obvious that the uh, fishing is not sustainable and we should do something about it so we should accelerate it. And that's our day job, okay? Accelerate it. Don't make it to wait 10 years till one plan is like beyond and impossible will be existing. Let's do it today. And then, yeah, that's my uh, two cents. Yeah, I guess with all of these things, we just seem to keep kicking these problems down the road, don't we? And um, we're going to run out of road soon enough. Um, Tom, what, what are your thoughts? Are governments doing enough? <laughs> no, absolutely uh, not. I think, I think, but I think I'm in. I, I, I'm a, I'm a person who believes a lot in, uh, you know, innovation wins and like you know, you know, business practices and what we're doing here is really like we need to find something that works economically that then's gonna make a huge impact in the world. I really believe that's the best way forward. I think that's also what history has proven has shown the most change and most dis most disruptive innovation doesn't come from. Government has come from a garage where there's really people who just puts a lot of work and then grows it with good capital and so on. So I think that's really the way forward. But I do like in recent years, I really started to like challenge how, how governments can do more. I mean, if you look into, you know, like the game field, I think that should be fair. And then if you look into how, you know, how you farm chickens or seafood for that matter, and, and all of these things, like they really, they have some really strange practices where we have sort of standardized, you know, mortality rates where they have, you know, big buckets and containers of right dead animals that they ship away in, in its production. And I think that should be honestly completely illegal. I think that's, it's crazy that that actually is happening. I think governments could push this more. They could talk about this more, but I think it's, uh, I think it's, um, honestly, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's hard because it's politics. And I mean, the sugar tax that's been talked about for many years, we know sugar is super bad for you, but. They never can seem to put that out there because it's going to, you know, uh, activate and push a, a lot of feelings out. And I think it's the same with seafood and meat that people have a very strong emotionally, uh, emotional connection with. So I think that is sort of hindering them to actually, you know, take really big decisions and actions, uh, against this animal farming and wild harvest that is really just destroying our planet to be honest. But I think, I mean, the best we can do is just focus on what we can improve, but it, you ask me if the governments are doing enough i would say no absolutely not okay i mean we've set the uh we've set the picture there we've talked about the challenges and the problem itself so let's 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 go on to the solutions and that's what you guys are all about let's talk about products 
um, production and processes. Um, there's many methods for production, such as cell cultivation, uh, fermentation, 3D printing, extrusion. And I think between you all, uh, we cover all of those bases. Um, but what I'd be right in thinking that um, the alternative seafood industry needs more innovative products and processes, not just hand-me-downs from the alternative meat market. Um, if you want to produce the real deal for consumers, if you pardon the pun, I mean, what particularly makes your own production process unique and stand out in terms of innovation? Um, Chris, can I start with you? Sure. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're more than alternative seafood, but we're starting with alternative seafood. And the, the types of species that we're looking at um, all have a very varied approach to, well, have to have a varied approach to hitting what we view as the, the, the most important categories of developing a food product. So for us, that's, that's sort of the deliciousness of it. So like the texture experience, um, uh, functionality and the nutrition. So we, we like to build from nutrition up and then make everything else fall in line. Um, and so when we, but when we look at our first product, which is this, you know, which is a, a, a white fish analog that has the same functionality as, as white fish is unbreaded. You can bread it if you want, you can deep fry it, you can do whatever you really want with it. Um, if you look at that, well, we've, we've taken a little bit of a different approach. We want to hit the market as soon as possible. And so our, our process, our production process is, well, there's some novelty within it for sure from the food chemistry side, all the way up to production with specialized equipment and everything. It's many would consider it actually pretty conventional. Um, and so at least with this first product for us, we, we wanted to hit the ground running, you know, we're, we're doing more extravagant, highly specialized technology, uh, technological processes for, for so many other products. Uh, but we wanted to start making a dent. And that was one of the reasons why I started, we started this company to begin was if, if we can't make a dent within two or three years, then I, I just, I, I, I gotta do something different in order to fuel this energy that I have. Um. But I know, you know, we have a little bit of a different approach than the others here, perhaps. Um, Ofek, could you tell me about um, your particular production approach? You're using additive manufacturing, I believe. Right. So uh, we took the marathon, okay, and uh, great, uh, great other founders <laughs> here are doing uh, the quick wins. And uh, it's very important because uh, without them, we would be um, uh, no one. But what we're doing is actually we created a new machinery that can actually build salmon plate by plate, like you build Lego, but on a production line, which is very unique and very hard to pursue. And we already have a production facility, which can create some capacity for a few restaurants. And we're starting to introduce it to restaurants in the upcoming month. We just got the, the approval from Ministry of Health in Israel, and we're waiting to, to make sure we are good for the US. But basically, um, uh, this is a very new process that we have uh, um, patents on it. And it's the first process actually works on building um, a full cut of salmon filet, which is very complicated, both in texture, second in different colors and texture within the fish, and third to do it uh, in, uh, in scale and, and to do it on the exact structure of the filet. And that's the whole uh, point. Now, to do it is not only the, the mechanical side. Of course, we had to tailor the texture from the materials as well. So it was, we have a mix. We have two departments here. One 
only mechanical engineers, the, the other one only food scientists, and they're working together in the, not in the same lab, but two labs, one next to, to, to another, and they're working together. So they built the product together with the machine that creates the product. So it's a unique uh, way of creating food, but that was the only way we found out that we can actually mimic the whole structure of the salmon filet, and that's what we're doing. And then um, it's going to take time till it's going to be everywhere, but uh, we believe that the product is is very exciting and it's worth the time and the, the efforts to bring it, and it's not cultured meat. It's already uh, being introduced in a few months and will be in mass-scale production in more than a few months, but it's not uh, it's not in uh, five years, it's less. Yeah. Um, I'll come on to Nikita and um, Roe in a minute. Um, Tom, you, I mean, folk mentioned scaling um, there. You, you guys uh, at Hooked Foods, you've already achieved some significant scales. I mean, how, how are you doing that? Um, so we are working with a different technology that is available with uh, co-manufacturers, not a lot of co-manufacturers, but some out there in Europe that we're collaborating with. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's of course, uh, you know, a, a way to move to market more, more quickly than, you know, perfect as setting it up, you know, from the base. And I'm, I'm also like pretty excited about 3D printing. I think it's pretty cool because it's really the process that I think differentiates the, the innovation, uh, in plant-based, like how we put together the different texturized proteins with, with gels and fats and so on. Um, and we were using extrusion, which is a different type of uh, technology. And we're, we're of course trying to work, work around that as well, uh, as much as possible, but in this case. Like we, we have co-manufacturers that can, that can produce our products. We're developing our products here in the lab so we can still protect them with patterns and trade secrecies and so on. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's how we're doing. And with that scale, of course, we can also reach pretty affordable prices, which is also like our sort of brand positioning because we don't have the fillets. We're more looking to offer, you know, the, the fish version of the, you know, the minced meat, the plant-based minced meat. It's for a ship. I'm trying to touch it. have to you, say you're doing an amazing job. Your products are really awesome thanks a lot sent to you a big yeah super cool product <laughs> um, so i think we have very deep, like a little bit different uh, positioning um when it comes to what we offer uh between us but i think yeah, i think both will have a play a very important role for the transition mm-hmm. um, this um nikita and um Rui, you guys are coming at it from a cultivated um space i guess um Rui, scaling is a problem for for cultivated products um could you um let us know how you're addressing that um, with your... It's, it's an eel product, isn't it, you mentioned? Yeah, it is our first product, but we have a completely different approach for uh, meat cultivation and other companies. So while other companies, at least most of them, are using a methodology called directed differentiation, which means that they are directing stem cells to a specific cell type, for example, muscle, of it, we uh, grow organoids uh, as mini tissues that uh, spontaneously differentiate to the edible cells altogether. So instead of having a building block of the tissue, which is a scaffold upon which, you know, uh, say muscle cells have been sitting on and so on, we grow these mini tissues and, uh, and these our basic blocks. Um, of 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 the tissue, and by that we're uh, saving some production or scale up challenges such as uh, scaffolding stage or, or the number of bioreactors needed uh, 
uh, for the uh, manufacturing uh, process, and even usage uh, of, of the tremendous amounts of the growth factors. So all these are uh, um, points basically tackles tackle the the challenge of of price parity, and that's you know our edge in terms of uh, manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nikita, with your with your particular product, how are you? What's what's especially innovative about the way you're doing things? I know I know that every process is different, even in cultivated products. So, what particularly is innovative about the way you guys are doing it per liter? Yeah. So, um, our long term vision is cell based, and we kind of are scaling that up slowly. We kind of d- decided to approach this differently in the sense that we right now have five products, uh, plant based products that we're kind of using to. Um, that we have various food processing techniques that we can apply later on for the cell-based uh, things, but it also helps us kind of test distribution channels, help us have conversation with consumers, helps, helps us kind of like bring our products and know exactly what we want to scale up when it comes to our cell-based uh, products. So we have um, three more like restaurant uh, restaurant products that we're actually going to have, they're going to be in restaurants uh, next month. And then we have two applications of those products that we're trying to bring out to consumers uh, hopefully within the next few months. So we're kind of uh, scaling up slow in uh, in that sense where we're developing the plant-based products and uh, scaling up our cell lines as well. <laughs> I mean, some of the more um, common proteins for plant-based seafood are soy, wheat and pea, um, algae, seaweed and other aquatic plants are helping to mimic that seafood taste. Um, in terms of ingredients, what is emerging that you think will be important for innovation in, in this particular sector? Nikita, can I stay with you for that question? I mean, what yeah. with each of your products are you trying to achieve in terms of taste? Um, at the, you know, every product are very, very different, but what, what specifically with your products um, are you trying to achieve with taste and, and what ingredients are playing a role there? Yeah, so um, we we're focusing on fungi and uh, mycelium as uh, our focus, and so that's strategic in terms of the um, efficiency. You can kind of rely on that growing growing anytime, anywhere. It's quite cost efficient as well. It's quite, and um, we figured out ways to process that to really mimic what we're trying to accomplish. So, we have a few different products, and I think a particular challenge for when it comes to seafood is making something taste like fish without being fishy, which is like, you have this like very fine line of what you're trying to accomplish, like very fresh uh, flavor, but not something that's like off-putting. Um, and so, and something that's maybe unique to us that we have done a lot of experiments with is sort of the, the slipperiness. So for instance, we have a shucked oyster product and there there's, again, like it's something where you have such a fine line of creating something that mimics the real thing has like that particular chew the bite the softness on the outside and then that slippery texture and has like brininess so those are some of the things that we've worked quite hard to um mimic and um most i think it, most people are quite impressed and think we've done a very good job there i think it's that i mean you're not going to get consumers on board unless the taste is right so uh, you know how are you guys achieving that yeah so we're actually very very much there in terms of uh, the product level we are doing already consumer tasting uh, almost every week and we're getting we're receiving good feedback from uh, from everyone there will be always what's how to be better so uh, on the textural level we're quite there on the taste still 
some feedbacks of modifications that we're trying to do. But in general, in terms of ingredients, I am betting on seaweed. I think seaweed is going to be like oldies for uh, milk, seaweed for alternative uh, fish. And I think that uh, there is so much potential in seaweed. Uh, it has the nutrition, it has um, uh, very similarities even in taste. And it's even the feeling when you know that seaweed is coming from the ocean. So uh, the perception of seaweed, I think, is very good. There are not much, uh, not enough uh, scale in that uh, phase of uh, seaweed-based protein and seaweed-based fat. And DHA oils are very, very expensive. But I see very good startups starting now. And I believe that in a few years, we're going to use seaweed as the main ingredient in our product, and it's going to play good for us. I'm just making a note of that. I'll be investing in a, a seaweed seaweed yeah, supplier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tom, what ingredients? What guys are you using? Uh, this is different for your Samunish product or your Tunish product. <laughs> it's different. It's different, of, uh, absolutely. But it's uh, mainly we're using soya with the uh, base uh, yeah, proteins right now. It's... It's the cheapest and it's very functional and doesn't have that much of flavor. So we think that works quite well. And I think, I think, yeah, like on a broader perspective, I think the more there's more innovation to be done in like the process, how we put together the product and new technologies there rather than the ingredients. But if I would bet on any ingredients, I think Angie is very interesting. And especially there are a few companies now that are offering algae that doesn't have that green look. It's completely white, essentially. And then you can have a really white uh, texture as well. And also the connection to the sea and it's very nutritious. So I think that's that's very exciting, but it's very expensive. So like we would have maybe four or 5% of our total list. Like it wouldn't be, you know, you know, 20, 30% of the total prop. So it's like, uh, it's still quite, it's, I think it's just too, too expensive right now. But if there's more demand in the future, I think that's definitely, um, you know, an ingredient we would use more at least. I guess it's quite hard. So, I mean, when you're looking at the, the products attributes and you're, you're looking at mouthfeel and taste and, and texture and cookability as well, you know, the functionality of the product. So if you're a chef cooking it, that's important. Um, how hard is it to achieve a balance? You know, sometimes it must be one step forward and two steps back. And then, um, Chris, I know we've talked about this in the past. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> There, there, you know, when you're, when you're developing plant-based analogs, there, there can be a sense of something's got to give, right? Um, I think we can all maybe shake our heads, at least inside a little bit, uh, depends on how quick you want to get there. Um, you know, for, for our approach, uh, doing whitefish, which is just, uh, on the bizarre side of how, of how pro there, there isn't a product out there that, that exists for whitefish the way we we envisioned it um we knew that in order to where we have a, a beautifully difficult uh but high quality standard bar here in iceland for seafood and specifically whitefish where it's it's half of the seafood value right um where people consumed it five to six days a week up until 10 years ago right and consumed cod liver oil daily until their teenage years and then they start again in their thirties. Um, if, you know, if for us, if, if we didn't, uh, think how do we hit the macro and micro nutritional profile of North Atlantic cod, so removing the carcinogens, microplastics, worms, bones, 
carcinogens when you cook it, destruction to the ocean. If you remove all those, and you're you know you're left with with a, a vehicle for uh, some some healthy components, right? So um, healthy, and and so when, when we address those, um, we we know that we'll we'll we'll, we'll win with consumers the way they want, right? Um, for the most part, but then it comes down to, for us, what was texture and, and taste and, and similar to Nikita's, uh, sentiment and experience there. Um, you know, if you put out a fish, fishy product in Iceland where people only know fresh fish, people would be like, what are you doing? Right. Um, and then, but if you go to a different market and you try to sell it and there, that doesn't have the taste of fishiness, um, well, then, you know, they're gonna be like, this isn't fish. It's like, well, yeah, of course, it's not fish, it's plants. But if it doesn't have that fishiness, then, then, you know, for some reason, they think it's not fish, but that's just, so for us, it was, uh, how do we, how do we create a product that is, uh, or products that have that, that similar functionality, that similar texture, um, similar nutrition. Um, and so, you know, it, with all those bars, it, it's sort of dwindles your scope of what you can use right um we're big believers of mushroom seaweed and algae so macro and micro um we believe that within our sector that's going to be kind of the face of plant-based for the most part in, in five to ten years so yeah um before we move on to route to market um tom uh Rui, did you have anything to to add on that particular topic um on the mushroom, or which? Sorry, I didn't get that. Uh, sorry, on the um, on the ingredient side. Yeah, on the ingredient. Tom, you actually, yeah, you mentioned it, didn't you? But Rowie? Yeah. Um, in the cultivated meat space, we primarily look at how we nourish uh, the cells, and of course, uh, when we're talking about uh, hybrid products, uh, uh, we will look at. Uh, similar ingredients that were mentioned, uh, seaweed, algae, so, yeah. Okay, we're going to go on to route to market now, and I know that food service uh, is an important um, way in um, for a lot of you. Um, Nikita, you'd already talked about um, launching into restaurants, I think, next month, did you say? Um, but why is this uh, an important route to market for you? I guess without trial, there is no adoption. Yeah, I think there are a few reasons. First of all, you want to make sure you get really trusted feedback on your product. Um, that's something that we have found, like working with chefs, talking to restaurants, those are the people that have maybe higher standards for the product. Um, where And just another like interesting that kind of Chris uh, made me think about is just the different types of consumers. Like if you're testing with vegans or you're testing with people that eat seafood, you might get very different feedback on whether they like the product or not. So kind of working with restaurants is a really good way I was just seeing how it works in different applications, what's popular, how do they like to cook with it, what are some of the things that you need to improve on before you kind of start um, increasing your production and bringing it out to consumers. Um, so I think that is a great way to kind of test it out. And they might also be interested in working with, I mean, we're quite a small company. We launched just a year, just over a year ago. Um, so we can't produce at a large scale quite yet. So it's a good way for us to kind of you know, have that two-way communication and kind of bring up smaller ba batches, make adjustments batch to batch, and uh, work from there. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, Fig, I know in your profile picture, I think you're wearing chef's whites. Is that, is that right? Obviously, you see an importance of working with a chef. No, no, You know, when it's done, our salon with this costume, it's tastier. So that's why I'm putting it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, you, you talked a little bit earlier about your, your route to market. Can you just explain a bit more in, in detail? Yeah, actually, I'm very much related to what Nikita says. When you cannot produce in the scale of tone, you need to choose where you want to place your fish. And um, you get more from putting it in restaurant that you can actually come there, see the people eating there, talk with the person, talk with the chef, get a lot more feedback than putting it in a few stores and you don't know what happened with it. Mm-hmm. So it's a better uh, way of uh, getting receiving feedback, improving the product along the way, and also building your brand. If you can get to good restaurants, it can help you be perceived as a better uh, product. I think a lot of seafood is actually purchased via restaurants as well, rather than people cooking at a home. Is, is, is that right, Tom? I heard that. I heard this as well. And I think that's also, we are looking into different channels and estimating it for just small markets uh, like Sweden. We also see that the potential is, is huge in Horeca. Um, so I think, um, so I think, yeah, I think, I think definitely I like hotels, restaurants and, and food stores and everything. Uh, Related to that is really is really big, but I mean, but for us, I think it's worth mentioning. Like, I, we are now actually like focusing a lot on retail because we feel like that's where we get the most return on the investment with time and money. Uh, because retail is much more aware and up to date in in general terms when it and they're also changing their assortment like at least two or three times a year. So that really gives you an opportunity to always get into the assortment. When it comes to restaurants, for our our experience at least has been that. We're talking with them for a very long time and, you know, two years later down the road, they're putting it up and then it out in 60 restaurants. And then that versus, you know, huge retailers where you can get, you know, momentum and getting to hundred stores or 200 stores or maybe even five, 6,000 stores for the biggest retailers. If you're entering Germany, like that's pretty, pretty common. Um, that's a much better, you know, return on the investment. So we are actually, you know, moving more towards retail from our point of view, but we still see food service to be a, uh, an exceptional, you know, trial driver. And we can use that, you know, with early prototype products, but when it comes to volumes and actually making an impact, we're seeing much better returns on the, on the retail side, but that's yourself. Well, that's a good, uh, good time to move on to the sort of wider market and implications. Um, market penetration, available data on current supply and projected growth suggests that alternative seafood may account for almost 8% of global seafood supplies destined for human consumption by 2030. Do the panelists think that that is realistic? Uh, and if it is, what needs to happen for those projections to become a, become a rea- reality? Um, Nikita, should we start with you? And then I'm, I'm going to look at some of the questions from the audience because I completely forgot about them. Um, and uh, there's quite a few in there, so I'm going to come on to some of those in a minute. So, Nikita, um, do you think it's realistic for, for that 8% figure by 2030? Uh, I think it's, well, I want to think it's realistic. <laughs> I think definitely with more people sort of um, entering the space just over like the past few years, I think we've touched upon this already, like so many more companies are tapping into the space as well, and I think that really helps. I think that um, the more companies enter, the more consumers are going to, open their eyes for this um uh, for like these types of products i think that would definitely help and just with how quickly technology is advancing in the space as well um i don't think it's it's an unrealistic number i think that with having sort of the meat companies like traditional animal farming companies that whole space 
stood out a little bit before us. Um, they have kind of been able to shine some light on the gaps that needs to be filled by other types of companies to help fill out the supply chain in general and make the whole uh, space a, a little more uh, horizontal. And I think that kind of benefits the entire industry as a whole. Rory? Yep, I think that it's uh, totally realistic, but it could be our we would we would all have to prove that we are able to deliver products that are uh, similar, at least very close in flavor, and uh, have the right uh, nutritional values as well as uh, price. And if these uh, are met. These conditions are met. I think that eight uh, percent certainly will, when you look on comparables and, and, and from other domains, uh, it's it's very realistic. <laughs> um, actually, there's a question here that's um, kind of linked to that. Lavana uh, Schiffman from MAF, I think that's Modern Agriculture Foundation. Um, she said, "When will cultured fish be available to the masses?" So we're kind of addressing that. How much does the regulation delay the process? Um, is it is it delay in the process in any way? I don't think that they really delay the process. No. Uh, first of all, as I, I mentioned earlier, the first wave of cultivated meat companies um, were meat and chicken, and they are not in a in the market in a big masses yet, and they still still do not, do not have the capacity to produce uh, mass uh, quantities. So, uh, and, and there will be three launches uh, of cultivated meat product this year. And as the uh, cultivated fish and seafood companies started a little bit later, um, probably they will uh, follow. So I don't think that the regulatory um, burden uh, really impacted the, the, the launch. And, but there will be launches this year and, and next year's, and I, I truly hope that uh, the scaling and the scaling of the processes will take place, and uh, the cultivated meat as a whole, the industry as a whole, and the cultivated fish and seafood in particular, will be able to deliver products that will uh, comply with the three uh, um, criteria that I mentioned earlier. Anyone else got anything to say about regulations? For a go on then, OFEC. So I don't, uh, I, not about the regulation, about the previous uh, question. It's okay. realistic to have these uh, ambitious goals, and I would say it's very optimistic. And the only reason I think we're here is because it's worth a try. <laughs> it's worth a try because we don't have any other, uh, we don't have plan B the ocean or the ocean we don't have plan b for the world so we all have to do our best to try but looking at the numbers saying you that uh, it's uh, very realistic it's super challenging like uh, if i'm uh, want to imagine it's happening it's many things have to work and the product has to be the best in everything and also the consumer has to be super aware and government has to be fully supporting and we got we need everyone on board for that and it's uh, very challenging but uh, we're here because we're big believers that uh, we will do it it's yeah right easy i mean with the greatest respect you guys are little fish in quite a big big pond i mean how much of a role do the major brands out there have to play in this you know can they can they be doing more now, i know you've got companies out there like thai union group they own john west and you know they're, they're developing plant-based products 
every good company selling fish has to have an alternative for fish. Every single company. I will be the first supporter and will go uh, and give them a hug when they will uh, put a uh, salmon fillet. Really? Yep. Yeah. That's it. Salmon sugar curry? No, uh, yeah, I think, I think we need all the efforts that we can. I, as I said, you know, in the previous topic, I don't think they are the ones that are actually going to do the change. I think this actually, you know, teams and companies like, like us, we don't have the money or the resources, but we do have uh, creativity, speed and agility and dedication uh, and a lot of talent and purpose-driven people. So I think that's really what is actually needed. And that would make the biggest sense that yes, like if like Nestle launching their Vuna and a lot of, you know, the big food companies, also seafood companies, I know has approached us, they're looking into alternative uh, seafood. I think that's great. I think it's great, but I think, um, I don't think they're the ones that kind of do the change, but I think, yeah, all that for so very welcome. I'm just looking at the clock here. I've got another quick question from Charlie Siebenberg. Um, how are you marketing the name of your products for consumers, whether plant-based or cell-based or hybrid? I know that's um, a particular tough nut to crack. Uh, Nikita? So is that in terms of like... Uh, like I, guess, I guess it's what you call it to get the consumer on board. Well, so <laughs> I think that's, that's probably a chance that we're all kind of like faced with. I know that I can kind of touch upon a few things for, you know, when it comes to cultivated products, I you, I don't think that uh, you'll be able to call it vegan. You definitely have to be very transparent in the labeling about what you want to call it. But cell-based or cultivated, um, in terms of, you know, the plant-based products, we kind of, obviously, our products, we can't call it oysters. We can't call it crab. We can't call it um, shellfish. We have to call it other types of creative things, which I think is, just in general, a very interesting marketing challenge, this idea of like, we kind of have to present it as novel, cool foods. And do people want that? Or do people want the actual, like replace something that looks really similar to the real thing? That's kind of like a challenge that I think is fascinating. Yeah. Okay, we've only got a few minutes left. So what can we expect from each of your companies next? Um, big developments, exciting breakthroughs. I know you're not going to reveal any secrets, but uh, Nikita, you first, and then I'll work around the screen. Yeah, well, I, we, you know, have kind of on the radar to launch into more starting with local restaurants and then uh, getting some of our uh, consumer, like the consumer products out here, hopefully, you know, it's so that it can be accessible for the entire country by summer. Okay, Chris? Yeah, I, I share that. I resonate with that. That's, that's, that's our focus for very similar stages, I believe. So we'll be launching... You know, in the coming months, there's a food service and large employers, things like that. Retail later on. Rory? Uh, so we are probably the furthest company from the market because we are a biotech company and it takes a lot of time. So we will be launching only by the end of uh, 2025. Uh, but we move on uh, forward with our milestones and we are achieving them. So uh, basically we will um move along what we have said as our uh, development uh, roadmap until the successful launch hopefully by the end of 2020 okay and uh either tom or or ifec i will give tom uh to be first oh wow thanks man uh i think for us i mean we have the products on the market and we're we're not looking to expand that portfolio a lot in the in the future because that adds a lot of complexity being in multiple markets. So we're going to focus on improving 
and finding really the product market fit. So it, it would be a lot of work on improving like texture, the flavor, the appearance, but also actually even more focus on driving down the cost. Because I think it's been mentioned a few times in this panel, but I think that's the biggest channel for all our products that we're actually going to reach price parity or even like um, below price for, for animal uh, protein. I think that's actually what's going to be required to move the masses to to our products and being very innovative, small scale. It's and not that much capital out there right now supporting us uh, for like low margin products. It's it, that's really tough. So I think that's our big focus, like procuring the the cost of our goods and decreasing the price to the consumers. That's the future. And uh, almost the final words to OFEC. Great. So I will be. I will speak uh, about how I see the future for us, which is stop mimicking fish. I want that our next products in the future will be new kinds of fish that we will be able to create, and we will be just focused on making it delicious. You know, we spend so much energy on making it just take like, taste like salmon, but we found all, along the way so many ways to do like delicious stuff, which is not uh, comparable exactly to any kind of fish, but it do give you the feeling that you're eating something from the sea. So uh, and I think that is the way to win, you know, like oatly, they're not doing exactly milk, they're doing oat milk and they put the oats in the center. And it's not about milk as it's about oat. And I think we can find ways to put in the future products that will not be mimicking anything else, but they're just going to be delicious. And I think that would be the winner in the marathon. We're all running, but this is only my philosophy. Okay. Thank you very much. We could have, could have done with two hours, but um, that's all we have time for today. I mean, we, we could have talked for hours about price parity and how we're going to achieve that. But uh, thank you all for joining us and taking part. Um, just a reminder that the April-May edition of um, Protein Production Technology International magazine will be out on the 26th of April, and it features at least... Uh, three of today's panelists in uh, a major article about alternative seafoods. Um, if you haven't already subscribed, you can do so via our website at www.futureofproteinproduction.com forward slash publication. Um, next month, our webinar series continues with Shaping a Greener Future, Exploring the Sustainable Benefits of Plant-Based Products, um, and that is sponsored by Ingredient. And we're looking forward to that and looking even further ahead at the Future of Protein Production Live will be taking place on the 11th and 12th of October at Rye Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, so everybody who's familiar with our virtual platform, um, that is us moving from uh, virtual waves to physical handshakes. So check out the website for further details on that. Thank you very much for joining us. We had so much more to discuss, but unfortunately time got the better of us. Um, so we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.